This is recording number 10776 from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Vallejo, California. This is the second message in the Tough Stuff series by Randy Bolt. It was recorded on Sunday morning, July 27, 2008. This message is titled, The Dilemma of Divorce. talking about uh, issues that are often thought of uh, not as the most pleasant, shall we say, uh, and, but there are things that affect us all and affect us in very um, real, very deep, and sometimes very challenging ways. And we need to be able to navigate these issues of our life. We need a map in order to navigate these, these very real, very personal, very uh, widespread uh, impacting issues uh, that isn't based on um, what Hollywood tells us or what other forms of media communicate to us or what our friends say to us, but what God has to say. And there's really only one place for us to go for that information. That's this book, the Bible. So I ask, I'm asking you to turn there this morning as we... Um, talk this morning about the subject of divorce. The title of this message is called The Dilemma of Divorce. Now let me ask you something. How many of you have either been through uh, a divorce yourself or in the midst of going through a divorce yourself or your parents or a sibling have been through divorce? Would you raise your hand? Okay, so most of us in the room. My uh, parents divorced when I was in my late 20s. Two of my three brothers have both been divorced twice. My mother has been divorced twice. My oldest daughter, her first marriage ended in divorce. I have experienced the trauma of this issue affecting me and my family. And in, indicated by how many hands were raised a moment ago, so have you. And if we're not careful, we will uh, make our way in responding to uh, the um, emotional, financial, spiritual, uh, physical trauma that accompanies divorce in an insufficient manner. Unless we come honestly before God's word and invite him to speak to us. I invite you, I, I implore you, I plead with you to join with me in, in approaching God's word with an open heart. Now, as I already have said, we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 19. We're going to read the first 10 verses there. And I'm going to invite you to follow along with me as I read. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So uh, Jesus, who's been ministering up in the northern part of, of uh, Palestine, around the Sea of Galilee, has made his way to the southern area called Judea. And he has uh, crossed to the eastern side of the Jordan River. It's a very desolate place. It's not a place you'd go to for a picnic. 
But people are there, gathered there, throngs of people to hear him uh, and to see him and to experience his touch. And so as they followed him everywhere, the crowds are there in this desolate place across the Jordan, on the eastern side of the Jordan River in uh, the Judean uh, wilderness, they call it. And great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? So the religious leaders are there also, and they tend to be following him around as well, looking for ways to entrap him in his words or to find some way to turn the crowds against him, and they think they found an issue that will do the trick. Divorce. And there were basically in those days, the same as it is now, a controversy among the religious people about uh, this subject. And it fell into two uh, arenas, either liberalism or legalism. And there were two uh, primary uh, rabbinic leaders uh, who captained or or championed uh, these two uh, polar uh, approaches to the subject of divorce. One guy's name was Hillel, and he took the liberal view. And he had many followers. He was a very influential man. And his take on uh, divorce was that you could get a divorce for any reason. And I mean any reason. Seriously, if she, you know, screws up the lasagna, she's gone. If he leaves his dirty socks on the bedroom floor, he's out of here. Uh, on the other hand, there was a guy named Shammai, and he, he championed the other or opposing view. He took the more legalistic view and had many followers. And his approach was that you could get a, a divorce, a God-sanctioned, a religious-sanctioned divorce on the basis of one reason only, and that would be uh, infidelity or adultery, more specifically, actual uh, adultery. Let's move now to talking about the specifics of what we just read in chapter 19 of Matthew's Gospel about what Jesus was teaching on this subject. And the first thing I want you to see is that Jesus was proclaiming at the beginning of the outset of his response to this question that God has intentions for love united hearts. Now, the the Pharisees are trying to entrap him. They're trying to take one side of the other in this controversy so at least half the population will turn against him. What Jesus does is he turns the question on its head. The Pharisees come to him and they say, All right, Jesus, uh, here's a question for you. How and under what circumstances can a person get a divorce? Jesus flips that around and says, Don't you mean that the, I don't you understand that the question really is not how can I get a divorce, but how can I have the kind of marriage that God intended for me to have? That's what he says when when he tells them, uh, Have you not read, verse 4, that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one. Ask the right question, you guys. Ask the right question. How can we have what God intended for us in the beginning? God intended us to have marriage relationships that were absolutely fulfilling. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 particularly, and then in verses 21 to 24, God, uh, the, the scene of God creating Eve and joining her with Adam is uh, beautifully 
articulated. But remember, in the beginning, God created Adam alone. Now, it wasn't later, God would say, and it was, he, God says. Now, remember, the, the scripture is recording first that God creates this, he creates that, he creates the other thing. And in every case, he says, and it was good. God saw that it was good. God creates the crowning of his creation. Man, God creates Adam. He says, it's not good that man should be alone. It's not good that man should be alone. So was it that God created man and go, oh, I forgot something? <laughs> no. It was a plan and a purpose in this. God created man alone and then involved Adam in the process of, of categorizing and cataloging all the rest of creation. And all the time, Adam is growing increasingly aware, wait a minute, there's no partner for me. There's partners for the beasts of the field and the fish of the sea. But there's no partner for me. And the longing and the desire and the awareness of something missing in his life becomes acute. And, in, and pressed in, God's intention is that that, that, that understanding of our, of our need for a life partner was deeply embedded into the fabric of what it means to be a human being. So then, when God takes from Adam, remember Adam is created from the dust of the ground, but Eve created from Adam, took part of Adam, created Eve, brings her to Adam, and Adam says, this, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Where my bone ends and hers begin, I don't know. Where my, my skin ends and hers begin, I don't know. I've lost track of that boundary. There's no boundary there. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. God, it says, made a partner comparable to him. Someone who fit him. And someone he fit, someone who completed him and her. So when asked the question by these Pharisees, uh, what do we do, God? How do we go about, or Jesus, what do you say about God's intention for how we split this thing up? Jesus says, oh no. The question is, how do we keep it together? How do we, how do we honor God's intention from the beginning? That's the question. And that's ultimately the point of this message. God intended for us to enjoy fulfillment in our marriages. Now, let me just stop and say that in verses 11 and 12 of this same passage, we're not going to read them and, or deal with it, but it talks about singleness. And it talks about how there are those that God gifts with an ability to be single in this world. And so today, if you are not married... Uh, I, I'm not trying to insinuate by what I just said that there's something missing from your life. Because the Bible says that God, that God grants a gift to be single to, the, to some. But God intended for marriages to be full of fulfillment. Now one thing that we also need to see though is in, in Malachi chapter 2. And Malachi is just, just on the other side of the great divide between the Old and New Testament. From where you are in Matthew... Just flip back a few pages to Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. And there's only three chapters or four chapters. And so you can find chapter 2 pretty easily. But I want us to see a verse that um, comes into play in our under, trying to understand what God says and thinks about the subject of divorce. It's verse 16 where it says, For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. 
For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Now, if you've been around Christians long enough, you've heard somebody, some probably preacher man like me, use that verse like a club. God hates divorce. Am I the only one? Anybody else ever experienced that? Okay, I am the only one. Well, that's all right. It's okay with me. But I've heard it, I've heard it used that way as a club. God hates divorce. And when you're going through the breakup of a marriage and the pain and the trauma of that, the last thing you need is for somebody to come along and smack you with the Bible. God hates what's, what you're doing. And, more, and what it sounds like is God hates you. But that's not what this is here for. And it's important for us to see from the outset that God does not hate divorced people. God hates divorce, and he tells us the reason. Because it rends the fabric. It covers your garment with violence. God intended for marriage to be a seamless garment that we wear together. We're, we're, we're in the same clothes. And divorce tears that seamless garment. It's so, uh, it brings so much violence against God's plan that God's heart breaks over that. It's so contrary to the very nature of God himself, who is three in one. That the whole idea that we would take something God has joined together and that uh, kind of, um, of uh, unity and tear it apart. The debris and the fallout and the hurt and the pain that goes along with that God, it breaks God's heart. And this is, so this isn't something that should be used as a club. It's actually an expression it's actually an expression of the compassion of God. He's saying to those who, who uh, have experienced this trauma, I understand. It hurts me more than you know. Now, when he goes on, he says, <clears throat> or they, they shoot back to him. Um, verse 7. Well, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? So now they really think they have him trapped because they say, well, 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 well. The Old Testament, Moses. And there's no more revered word or more revered person in the Hebrew mindset than Moses. He's the lawgiver. He's the one who gave the Ten Commandments and all. Wrote the first five books of the Bible. First five books of the Old Testament. Well, 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 Moses said in Deuteronomy 24. Verses 1 through 4, Moses said we could give, we could write a certificate of divorce, send her on her way. What do you say about that, Jesus? And here's what he said. Verse 8, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. So he says to them, Moses, understanding that in a pre-atonement state, before salvation is available, before the resource of the Holy Spirit is available to indwell a person who has come to know Christ as Savior, before the cross, before the resurrection, before the atonement, in that state, uh, God was saying sin had constricted people's hearts so that the flow of God's grace to their uh, points of need was shut down 
You know how, how like at home when your pipes get all corroded and you don't have the same water pressure that you once had? There's something about the flow of God's grace to human need that gets choked off by our sin. And Jesus said, because of the hardening of your hearts, the hardness of your hearts, Moses made an accommodation. Understanding that people were, people were stuck. They were, they were in... Uh, Relationships that were crumbling and falling apart. And, and you know, I've, I've been a pastor long enough. I've lived long enough that I know that although marriage is, is intended and can be and surely should be experienced as the highest, uh, most lovely, most wonderful, most safe, most rewarding of all human experiences, often it's hell. And Jesus, Jesus was saying God, through Moses, was making an accommodation for that. People who find themselves in hellish relationships with no way out, with their hearts strangled off from the flow of God's grace and without any, any way of, of accommodating or welcoming the power of God to change their circumstances. So Moses said, let's do this right at least. Don't just kick her out on the street. Let's, let's have a method, a way, a plan to do this in a, in a godly, a kind approach. So he was addressing the, the pre-atonement um, conditioning or context. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 through 20, though, the, the prophet Ezekiel says there's coming a day. He points to a day when God is going to take the stony heart and give a heart of flesh. And he was pointing to the coming of the Messiah who would give his life to ransom us from sin, to cover the stain of sin with his blood, to bring recovery and with it, a recovery from our separation from God and with it, the full capacity of God's grace to touch every human need. He said, I'm going to take, the day is coming when I'm going to take that stony heart, that sin-constricted, a dried up, a hardened heart and give a heart of flesh. So he was pointing to something beyond the mosaic accommodation. But even in Moses' um, regulations found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, 1 through 4, there's something uh, that we need to take note of that will be a part of the new order where he says to them, in the, uh, the, the dissolving dissolution of a marriage, give her a, a certificate of door, a divorce. And then it goes on and talks about when she's, or he, is remarried, what happens. And there's an assumption that a God-ordained divorce allows for remarriage without stigma. And that's going to be something to hold on to and remember as we move through some scenarios later in this, in this teaching. But... Uh, even in that, Moses was saying, when you've sent her away with a certificate of, of divorce, if she remarries and that marriage doesn't work out, you cannot take her back. If her second husband or uh, um, a subsequent husband dies, you cannot take her back. And Moses was talking about this marriage-go-round idea. Where, where marriage was just sort of a, I don't know, an in and out kind of thing. God was saying, oh no, no, no. So 
in our understanding as we move through this, let's have those things as part of the backdrop. So Jesus proclaimed God's intentions for love united hearts, and then he acknowledged the limitations of sin-constricted hearts, but then he constrains us toward reconciliation through spirit-enabled hearts. And let's pick it up at um, verse 9. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. I want you to see that Jesus is, is corralling us. He says, look, I, I'm not going to take these two, either of these two extremes where you get a divorce on any, for anything or there's only one way out of a marriage and that's if one of the partners commits adultery. I'm not going to fall for that game. Let me tell you about what God intended. Let's talk about what God provided. And then let me tell you what I'm moving you toward. And he is corralling us towards a tenacity of, in marriage that is relatively non-existent in our culture today and, and uh, apparently was not in that day either. Where people uh, fought for their, their relationships. Where people decided, you know, this is too important to just discard. To just walk away. Jesus said, if a man divorces his wife... To marry another. And that's the implication. The purpose of the divorcing of his wife is to marry another. To get out of this marriage and get into a better one. If the purpose of, of divorcing is to get another marriage. To leave this rotten, messed up one and get the right one. Jesus said, no way. Because he's corralling us. He's constraining us. He's pointing us back to a welcoming God's healing power in the marriage that we're in. Not to uh, uh, confine us to some sort of prison term, but to point us back towards welcoming his grace in the midst of that difficult cir- circumstance. I, I know a guy, uh, he's in the midst of, he's left his wife and uh, he's in the midst of divorcing her and he's left her and their children. Because he's found another. And what he said to me is, I believe that one, this one, the other, is God's intention for me. Problem is, she's the third now. And I said, look, brother, this is going to keep going until the day you decide that when you stand before God and pledge yourself to a woman, that day, if not before, She becomes God's will for your life. Make that work. Invite God's grace into that situation. Can he or can he not fix it? Decide. If he can't, he's not God. And if he can, what in the world are you doing? (laughs) I haven't seen him again. Probably didn't like what I had to say. But that's what Jesus was saying. But not with a cold-hearted, uncompassionate understanding. With deep, deep love that people experience and know what God intended from the beginning. And that only happens when we have a commitment that transcends our personal selfishness, our pride, you name it. 
<clears throat> so Jesus was constraining us towards, uh, uh, towards recovery, reconciliation through spirit-enabled hearts. And he was exposing faithlessness and, and selfishness. I've already described this, but really when we come to the place where we decide God can't fix this marriage, we're really making a statement about him ultimately, aren't we? I mean, we're, we're saying something about ourselves, too. We're saying, you know, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And that is likely true. I know what it's like. I've, I've walked through this with enough people to know that genuinely and legitimately they come to the place where I can't do this anymore. There's nothing left of me to give. And I understand that. And so does God. But when we make the leap to say, God can't fix it. God is out of resources. God can't do it either. Then we're saying something about God that we may not want to say. Now, Jesus did give us an exception. He said, except for sexual immorality. And he didn't use the word for adultery. Remember Shammai, he said the only way out only way God honors divorce is if one or the other of the uh, parties commits adultery. But Jesus used a broader term, sexual immorality. And really, it comes down to a breach of trust that the covenant of marriage is broken by some sort of sexual activity outside of marriage. Some, any form, sexual immorality, any form of sexual uh, activity outside of marriage breaches the trust uh, that is the, is the foundation of that marriage. And Jesus says, man, when the founding concept of what a marriage is, is broken, Jesus acknowledges there sometimes can be no recovery, at least from the human standpoint. Now, I've walked through this enough, as I've already said with people, to know that they, it's really hard to recover trust when it's broken. Because the, the offending party has to prove themselves trustworthy at the very same time that the offended party risks trusting again. But what happens is the offended party won't risk trusting again until the offending party proves themselves trustworthy. But that can't ever happen unless the offended party is willing to, tr- to risk being hurt again and trusting again. On the other side, if the person is willing to risk trusting again, but the person who has offended doesn't prove themselves trustworthy at the same time, the risk, the risking party will be once again hurt. And it just goes deeper. And so there's just, uh, it's, Jesus says, except for when the very fabric of the relationship has been so breached, the the covenant of marriage so breached by, by this Breaking of trust. In that, Jesus says, in that there can be divorce. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 16, and then in verses 39 through 40, you can read this later. But Paul expands this idea. And he says, he says if a, if a, a non-believing, uh, let's see, a believing person is living or married to a non-believing person, and that non-believer wants to stay in the marriage with the believer, he says, stay in the marriage. But if they depart, if they depart, the remaining spouse, the believing spouse, is not under bondage. 
And he's referring to uh, something that he uses in the, in the, at, at the end of the same chapter when he talks about if a, 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 uh, in a marriage one of the spouses dies, the husband or wife dies. And he says the remaining spouse, the surviving spouse, is not bound, not under bondage. And he's talking about they are free to remarry. So your spouse dies, you are not imprisoned to a life of singleness. You're free to remarry. But he, he says that when, the, when, the, when a spouse departs the marriage, when they leave the marriage, it's that same thing of breaking the, the trust, the sacred bond that, that holds us together. When they break the marriage contract, the marriage covenant, in such a violent way, the remaining spouse is not bound. It's the same word. They are not imprisoned. I, I, I remember... I had a lady in my church one time. Her husband was a merchant marine. And, uh, and he, so he traveled the world all the time. He was home very rare, rarely. And she knew, it was no secret, that he had another woman in every port of call. But when he would fin- you know, finish his you know, tour uh, wherever they were traveling, he would come home and you know, try to pick up where he left off with her. And it was, the, you know, it was just sick. It was just sick. And I told her, I said, this man has broken the basic, the, the fundamental concept of what a marriage is. Divorce that scumbag. <laughs> Don't continue to live in this sick, imprisoned notion that God wants you to somehow give yourself to that. God God is gracious and merciful towards us, at the same time constraining us towards marital tenacity. Do you hear what I'm saying? Now, I don't have much time, but I I feel uh, compelled to go through some specific uh, scenarios really quickly so that it's on the record and so that if there's something that I haven't addressed with you in your particular situation or someone you know or love, that at least you could have something. So I'm going to go through this stuff real quick. I want to talk about when uh, there is spousal sexual immorality. I've already talked about this some, but let me move through, through these things in a methodical way. First of all, um, separate, if needed, for emotional security. This is sometimes... A missed step. Believers don't think that they have the option. But we have in the example of, of Moses and his wife, the, the scripture is pretty clear that they came through to a point of a real devastating argument about the uh, circumcision of their children. And it's clear they separated for a period of time. And it gives God a chance to work in their lives separately and then bring them back together in a better place in their hearts. So separate if needed for emotional security. Seek pastoral and or professional counseling. Adopt a posture of faith for marital recovery. What often happens is, is we decide, oh, well, this marriage is over. I have an out now. My spouse has committed adultery on me. Uh, but, but that should never be our first option, our first choice. I believe that it's uh, our first response should be a faith. We know God can still fix this. God can fix this. But uh, divorce if the offending spouse remains unrepentant, unsubmitted to a healing process, and are unchanged after an appropriate period of time. Or if the offended spouse is unable to recover trust. 
And then uh, they may remarry after sufficient time uh, has uh, passed to recover and heal from, from the trauma of all that. What about a person who is married to an unbeliever? I've already talked about that some. Here's some references on the screen if you want to look at it later. But I believe that if you're married to an unbeliever, you need to remain in that marriage if they're willing to remain married to you. And be a person who welcomes God's saving grace into that relationship by your quiet testimony. Paul asks the question in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, um, you never know that your testimony may be the thing that draws that person to the Lord. What about if you are divorced in violation of God's word prior to uh, conversion, before you were a believer and you, you've experienced a, door, a divorce or gone through a divorce? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says we are new creatures. All things have passed away. All things have become new. But commit to building a Christ-honoring marriage and the one you're in or the one you will be in. What about if you were divorced in violation of God's word while a believer? Well, I believe that there's repentance required because you have made a statement about God's inability. You've said, God, you can't fix this. And you've walked away from, from uh, something that, that uh, you shouldn't have. So there needs to be repentance and uh, an effort to reconcile if possible. If, that, if your uh, former spouse is not remarried, you need to... I believe, welcome the possibility that God might, make, might be able to restore or re- recover that. And in some cases, restitution needs to be made. Maybe there has been a remarriage, and maybe you're a person who, to put it blunt, screwed your partner over in the divorce. You, know, you probably need to make that right. Um, but you may remarry, uh, I believe, after uh, submitting to the Lord in partnership with pastoral care and after sufficient time for healing and recovery from the past. And the reason that I say that is because God is the one who said it's not good for man sh- uh, to be alone. And there, are, there comes a point when, even if we've screwed it all up royally, there comes a point when God's first statement about marriage trumps everything else. It's not good for man to be alone. Uh, what about if you're in an abusive uh, spouse situation. Your, your spouse is abusing, abusing you physically, emotionally, whatever. Well, what do you do about that? Well, first, uh, I say the first thing is alert authorities, pastoral and civic. The first thing I tell somebody when they come to me and they're, uh, and, and by the way, one of, my, one of my brothers was a wife beater. I got the call when she was in the hospital. I know what that's about. And the first thing that, uh, I tell people in that situation is alert the authorities and get away from there. Separate from them for your physical safety. Seek pastoral and professional counseling. But adopt the posture of faith for marital reconciliation or reconstruction. Even though that seems like the weirdest and oddest thing, it is our duty before God to say, God, I can't imagine a, a, a way in the world that this could ever be right. But you are God. And before I jump to any other conclusion, I'm going to make that statement. You are God. If you can fix this, I want to be available to it. 
And, and then, you know, if God does begin to do something, return to cohabitation, but only after careful evaluation and verification of personal recovery, your personal recovery, and the relational reconstruction by objective and qualified counselors and the establishment of an appropriate accountability structure. It can't be, this is no lightweight matter. But I believe that First, that Paul's uh, instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, where it talks about we're not supposed to associate with, those, with abusive people, believers, abusive believers, gives us room for in, uh, also in connection with what Jesus and what Paul said in, uh, what Jesus said in Matthew 19, what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7 about when a spouse departs, would break the fabric, the basic fabric of a relationship. When that happens, that, that uh, divorce is acceptable. I believe that in this case, a divorce can be had uh, if the offending spouse remains unrepentant, unsubmitted to a healing process and or unchanged. And if the offended party is not able to recover trust, they may remarry after sufficient time. Um, then I want to talk to you about spousal substance abuse. And that may require a separation to break the cycle of codependency. I, I encourage people to seek pastoral and professional counseling. Uh, to adopt, again, a posture of faith for marital reconciliation. And um, much of this is a repeat of the same kinds of um, uh, direction that I give people when they are in a, a physically abusive situation. So I won't, I won't uh, I'll just pass through this stuff here. So how about um, when they, uh, there's a death of a spouse? It may seem as though it's not worth saying. It, uh, we, we sort of all understand that. Well, I'm not so sure sometimes. But uh, when the spouse has died, clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says that uh, they may remarry. But, but I, I want to add that I believe that it's important that uh, people don't just jump into another marriage, that they give themselves sufficient time for appropriate grief and recovery. A couple more things. What about Christian ministry after divorce and or remarriage? And the reason I want to get this in is because often Christians think they've been taught. Many Christians have been taught that if a person has been divorced under whatever circumstances, they are no longer qualified for ministry, at least at some levels. You can't be a pastor, you can't be an elder or a deacon or whatever. And they, they say that because uh, the scripture says that a bishop or a, um, a deacon, in both cases, they need to be the husband of one wife. Uh, and so they said that, or the, the teaching is, well, if you've been through a divorce, we tolerate you. You might get to heaven, but you can't, you can't be a minister. You can't be a leader. And I don't believe that that's the case at all. And the reason why is because I believe that God is concerned with a, a one-wife heart as opposed to a one-wife record. Um, remember that Jesus was the one who said that if you, if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. It's about the heart. It's about the heart. I know guys who have been married to the same woman for, you know, decades, but they have affairs constantly in their mind. And I believe that First Timothy, when it talks about, you know, a deacon or a, 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 an elder being a person who has a one wife 
uh, record is not about the record, but the heart. But I think there needs to be uh, sufficient time allowed for healing and proving if a person has gone through divorce. But the idea that God would uh, cause there to be an, a, an open door of full potential in ministry for anyone who's gone through any form of sin or trauma in their life is a statement, a testimony to the redemptive power of God. Now finally, what about an alternative? And you could stand with me because we're, we're almost done here. I want to submit to you that the alternative to all this mess that we've been talking about this morning is healthy, rewarding, and fulfilling marriages for those who will open their hearts to the presence and rule of God in their marriage and fully commit to their spouses, forsaking the threat of divorce. Dear one, the worst possible thing you can do to damage the fabric of your marriage is to hold the threat of divorce over that, your spouse's head. I'm going to leave you you do that, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to divorce you. You have no idea how... I know you're, you, you're using... And, I, and I don't, I'm not addressing anybody in the room, but I understand my heart. When, they, when we do that, I know what we're trying to do is protect ourselves. Sometimes it feels like the only weapon we have left to use. I understand it. But you have no idea how much damage you're doing when you do that. If you want a healthy, rewarding, and fulfilling marriage, one of the first things you have to do is lose that word divorce from your vocabulary. Decide. It's just not, not an option for me. It's not a threat that I'm going to use. And embrace a process of growth, drawing on the word of God, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the support of the church family, and godly counsel from proven church leaders. Another alternative is for those who are in troubled marriages. There's hope, dear Juan. There is hope. If there's a willingness to seek God's help, he can heal and rebuild. But there needs to be a desire, a decision, actually. So the decision precedes the desire. But a decision to submit to the word of God and scripture-based counseling. The desire will follow, but a choice needs to be made. All of us know what it is to encounter this issue in our personal lives, in our families, in our neighborhoods. And I want for you to at least have some notion, some recollection of, of what we talked about this morning. And it might Direct you to God's word where the only true map for navigating this stuff is. And I'm hopeful that you'll take away from this message a clearer picture of the heart of God about this stuff.